Hello, Gregoire. Hello, Edgar. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, thanks. So this is the last episode before we go on a break. That's true. It's almost the end of July now. Yeah, and we will be back for a new episode probably in October. October, yep. Yeah, if things go well. Mm -hmm. If the world has not exploded... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the only thing that would prevent us from recording. Exactly. The <laughs> Just world so people know, <laughs> we are on a hook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Edgar, do you know what we're going to talk about today? Well, I have no clue. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but as you know, <laughs> I don't. You have the notes. I don't. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> Unless people uh, don't know that. Exactly. <laughs> Unless there are notes in front of me, I cannot remember. I know we recorded something. Yeah. I could edit it uh -huh. and sound like I know it by heart. Yes. People would be like, "What? What is Edgar saying? <laughs> he doesn't know anything." And Gregoire is so great. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> They don't know that. Because I don't remember either, <laughs> but I'm going to read. Yeah, okay. Go ahead, read your notes. This is going to be the last of three episodes on Death Anxiety, mm -hmm. still with Daniel Plerneff. And we are going to talk about, are we referring to aggression too quickly, especially regarding theme related to death? What should we do about our shared humanity between analysts and patients mm. what about the analyst envy of some of his or her patients youth oh my yeah then we are going to go back to the first of the three episodes and talk about the difficulties we had recording it mm -hmm. and finally we are going to talk about death anxiety in a psychoanalytic training and some thoughts about how to Keep that alive. <laughs> what a combination of no words. Pun <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm uh, on fire. Uh, yes, you are. Just like Canada. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it never stops. This is so good. Yeah. <laughs> to laugh at the face of devastation. Sometimes mm. that's all we have, mm. but sometimes it's not. Mm, yeah. As we are talking about a pretty depressing subject, which is death anxiety and death, which is obviously related to climate change and uh, all the destruction that is connected to that, we often wonder what to do. Well, as individuals, I don't know if there's much we can do, except if any of us is listening from the White House, then you might have more to do, <laughs> but it's unlikely. Let me know if you do. <laughs> My door is open to any suggestion. <laughs> But there are little things we can do. Yeah. And among them, we can think of our conception as something local and something useful for the bees. Yeah. Because we need bees for pollinization. Yeah, we're talking about the little things. Bees. Yeah. Just the the in nice case. one. The nice one. <laughs> yeah, wasps, I don't know. You can just get rid of them. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's my expert advice. Yeah. And it happened that we know someone very close to us, very close to our hearts, mm-hmm. who has a website where you could buy honey directly from upstate New York mm-hmm. and sometime from the city itself, from New Jersey, mm-hmm. when bees make honey inside the city. It's a website called Ho Honey mm. Apiculture, and it's organized and produced by our dear friend Tina Paul. Mm-hmm. who is a psychoanalyst as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. So think about it as a way to have a psychoanalytic honey. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's uh, officially recognized as such. As such. Yeah. But hey, it was prepared by a psychoanalyst, so it mm-hmm. must be a psychoanalytic honey. Mm-hmm. It's local, it's organic, it helps sustain bees development in the region. Mm-hmm. So if you are on the East Coast, go to Oh, honey websites and order as many honey as you can. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful honey. And it will make you feel a little less powerless in that uh, complete meltdown that we're experiencing in the world. We should write down the website in the summary. In the When you say we, you we. mean I. <laughs> yes. I, of course I, you are I going to. I don't see you doing it. <laughs> of course you are going. I don't have the notes and I don't. <laughs> and I don't write things in the summer. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> so we so should do it. Then. We should do it. This <laughs> it's, it, we should do it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Thank you. It's some kind of royal we. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is more about you than me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah often. <laughs> yeah. Often. Yeah. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. it. Thank you for listening to especially the three podcasts, which are, we mm-hmm. know, a bit depressing. But when Tinil suggested that theme, really, we thought this is something that has to be in the discussion. Absolutely. Yeah. As difficult as it is. Mm-hmm. And especially now, as again, with climate change, we are going to be affected as psychonists. Our patients are going to be affected. The idea that we are going to die, how we're going to die, etc. This is going to come up more and more. Yeah. If you want to contact us, you can always send an email to discussions on psychoanalysis at pm.me. We have a Facebook page, and of course, you can find us Twitter and SoundCloud. Give us five stars. Give us comments. Yeah. Make it known that discussions on psychoanalysis exist. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you like it, if you don't, don't do anything. Don't be such a pessimist. <laughs> No, I know that some people might be masochistically listening to us. Oh, my God. <laughs> What are those two idiots going to say today? <laughs> my name is Gregor Pierre. This is Edgar Francisco Danielsen. Welcome to Discussions on Psychoanalysis. Do you think that we might be going too quickly on aggression when a patient of us is uh, worried about our health or maybe that we could die? I think we have been trained to move quickly onto exploring the potential of aggression.
either in the words or the silence or the dreams. You know, I remember a case in which part of a presentation was a, a dream, and in the dream, the patient sees their analyst who is dyeing her hair, the analyst's hair. So when the patient brings that up in session, the analyst moved very quickly into, oh, so you have a death wish about me, uh, meaning this is a derivative of the aggressive drive, you want me dead. When, in fact, what seemed to be happening is that the analysand was very concerned about the health of their analyst because the analysand had seen some signs, physical signs, in the analyst. So what could not be expressed in session came through a dream. And unfortunately, the analyst went immediately and too quickly into the aggression. The derivative of the aggressive drive is showing up in your dreams. You want me dead. So I think it, that's one of the challenges of those of us who have been trained in a more classical psychoanalysis, you know, Freudian, dual drive theory, so on and so forth. And unfortunately, it, we have been criticized about this, and I think the critiques are valid, as this case with the dream shows up. Yeah. It's as if in situations like that, the analysts might not be able to tolerate the care Uh, the love that the patient is expressing. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that the analyst is not able to contain their fear about their own health issues. It's possible that they don't exclude each other. Exactly. So it's a very challenging situation for the analyst who might be sick or experiencing some sort of physical malaise and at the same time having the fear And the patient showing that in the session, it's too much to be metabolized. Don't you think that that could be, you know, could be seen from a different perspective as a reenactment? You know, the two, the patient and the analyst, both immersed in the fear, in the anxiety of death. Yes. Or oh, certainly. It's funny because the dying equivalence is working in English. I was thinking as you were presenting the case that in French it would be tendre. The hair, and I was like, tendre, die, mourir, no, nothing. You know, like, uh, there's something about the language. It's not uh, how the unconscious is not uh, just universal. It's built upon the language that you learn and that you use to communicate with mm -hmm. the people. Because as we say, usually when we have a dream, one of the person we address a dream to is the analyst. Yeah. So, yeah, in that case, um, it has to be said in English to be understood. Correct. Not in Spanish, yeah. for example. Yeah, or whatever language. It wouldn't work. Yeah. I wanted to say one thing in regards to what Edgar was talking about, this case. It brought up to my mind that like, as we age in this profession, we do need to be really aware of the fact that as we age or as we deal with illness, that our patients might be bringing these anxieties to us more and more, just as a reality of the aging process. And we may not be, those of us, you know, like, I'm a middle-aged person, and the three of us are, you know, probably close to the same age, I'm guessing. But as we get into I our... I will take that no, as a compliment. Not. We're not. <laughs> okay, I will so take that as a compliment. Much older than we are, Danielle. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thank you, Tenille. When you guys get out of your 20s, then, you yeah. know. Okay. But, okay. I just, I just, I, I just did. <laughs> um, but I think as we get older, you know, we do have to think about how our age will affect our patients and their feelings about our aging process as we are attachment objects. And, and being able to address directly, like, I wonder if you're concerned about my health or I wonder if you're thinking about my death or whatever the question might be, to be able to go there boldly. I don't think I have, that I recall, asked the patients such a question, which might say something more about me, (laughs) that am I anxious about jumping into that kind of situation in the analytic room in which I would be somehow confronted with my limitations as I age. We are a psychoanalyst in a different position than our patient. There is an asymmetrical dynamic in the work. Of course, yes. And I feel like in those moments, something similar happened during the lockdown. Mm -hmm. And especially before there was any vaccine. There was a fragility that we shared. And as an analyst, you had somewhat of a choice to stay neutral in quotes, and just analyze what the patient is saying, or to jump in and share in a way that would still be useful to the treatment, but share the common experience that you guys are experiencing. In some ways, COVID happens, I mean, a lockdown is, with climate change, it might happen more frequently, but it was a first for, I think, everybody. And yes. yeah, actually, that's a... It was the first for everybody on earth, probably. Yeah. So it's unexpected and, you know, it passes. Death is not going to pass. The question that we're going to die is going to stay for as long as we live. And so when the patient brings up our own death or actually maybe their own fear of death, Mm -hmm. I feel like something of the same fragility is at stake. And so we might be tempted as a defensive maneuver to reject it, to in some ways analyze it too much or only analyze it as a way to defend ourselves. Like for instance, I got COVID once And I remember I felt ashamed. It was after the vaccine. I already had one or two shots. And um, I remember I had an hesitation. I actually at some point eventually told my patient, but I remember feeling that it was difficult to address, even if intellectually, I knew it was the right thing to do. I knew my life was not in danger. But COVID had been so clearly associated to imminent death Mm -hmm. that even if I knew that I was not going to die, the idea was still very much present. And also, I have to say, a sense of shame Mm -hmm. that I caught it. Uh, Irrational. As if you had not protected yourself enough or were uh, irresponsible. Mm -hmm. And so I decided that 
because I felt like that, it was even more so important that I mentioned it to my patients. So to help them feel two things, to help them feel like it's okay, and also in our dynamic, to not make myself put pressure on them unconsciously being angry at them for having forced me, I mean, could, because they were not part of the discussion, to hide that information from them. For both those reasons, I decided that it was actually, at that moment, important to say, what would I have said if I had had COVID before the vaccine? I don't know, because then the idea that I might die might have been overwhelming. Now that you can say that, I, I got COVID just at the beginning, in fact, the lockdown happened in New York, March 13th. I began to have symptoms a few days later. So I was in the first wave. I didn't disclose that to my patients. I think in part because of what you're saying, you know, everybody's very scared. And in what ways this will propel the treatment if I also say that this is happening to me. And probably someone else would have chosen a different path but it was the beginning we didn't know that there were no vaccine people were dying it was a crazy moment i mean it was scary it was crazy it was very scary so i decided not to disclose later on when some of my patients began to tell me that they had symptoms then i shared with them that i had had covid but it was not to all of them and i wish i could remember why I decided to do with some and not with others. That's not clear to me. I, I would have to go back in time and try to ask a question for each one of my patients. Well, good luck with that. Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Your super ego is inflating. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> this is really important, what you're saying, in, in the sense that COVID was a time where our humanity as analysts, right, the kind of fantasy that people build around us or the projections or all the things we contain exist but also the humanness of us right we get COVID we got sick we lost people they lost people and I think death is the same right we're all going to die that's something we all share and the reality of it is really a lot for any human to sort of sit with mm -hmm. and knowing how to handle that in a session it's not an easy thing, and I think it's very easy for us to defend against it ourselves as analysts. I can think of many times in the recent years where people were talking about subjects around death anxiety, and I remember just sitting there in silence with them, right? And on one level, that's a technique we use all the time where we just sit in the presence of, like, very intense motions, and we're just with someone in them. However, I think upon reflection, part of the silence was that I was sitting with them in it, but I wasn't able to work with them through it, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, it makes mm -hmm. sense. I let it hang in the air and I tolerated it, but I couldn't, I didn't know what to do with it myself. And I think if I had those moments to go back, I would do things differently these days because of some of the thinking and work on this that I have done myself. But those moments are hard. Yeah. I remember I had a patient who was um, misdiagnosed with a terminal and imminent disease. Mm -hmm. And, well, there is nothing to say but to recognize that 
it is not just a fantasy that yeah it could happen and to not shy away from it i mean i'm presenting it i it's i don't know if it's a general thing to do but i think that's what i experience in this situation that what are you gonna say oh tell me about your anxiety does that remind you of something like shut up mm-hmm. <laughs> no no this is terrible news to use the word they used last week well <laughs> what we were recording last week it would be cruel for the analyst to ask such a question yeah tell, tell me about your feelings well i'm gonna die what, <laughs> what do you want me to tell you <laughs> because the patient was talking about how and that was the surprising part to me is that it was not just um he's on death but the fact that he would abandon or not see his the ones he loved uh, grow up mm-hmm. and there is at least for healthy people who are all of a sudden diagnosed uh, with uh, terminal disease or something like that, we're not ready. I don't know if we can be ready. I mean, I've heard of some old people being like, yeah, okay, I'm done. Can I just die? Can I <laughs> let me die, please? I'm like, oh, well, I wish I could get there eventually. <laughs> but it's fine. <laughs> but as we're here today, we're not in this position. We are not expecting You see, symbolically speaking, we did not integrate that. It's not supposed to be our time. And people are not expecting it. And we live our life in a way that is not taking that into account. We're supposed to die later. But then it can abruptly fall onto someone. And if this someone is your patient, I would certainly sit with them with the fact that there is nothing to do. It's part of our work that we tend to forget because we are analyzing machines in some ways when we are in therapy. I mean, when we are therapists. But part of our job is also just to be a witness. And sometimes that's the only thing that we can do. Yeah. But being a witness also means to acknowledge that we are castrated, that we cannot, through the magic of an interpretation, release the tension. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, not so long ago, a year ago, uh, Russia started to invade uh, Ukraine for s- false pretense. And there was this idea that there might be a, a nuclear war. Well, you, you can analyze the anxiety, how you approach the possibility of a, a nuclear war. But this, if it were to happen... This is not funny. I mean, it's analysis is not going to save you from uh, nuclear attack. Yeah, there are moments where we just need to listen. I think we need to hold together the tension between you know reality and fantasy. Perhaps we don't do a good job with that. We are way too focused on the intrapsychic experience of the patient. The reality, I would say, coming from the patient. Agreed. Because when we hold on to the reality as psychoanalyst, it can often be a way to close. Yeah. We know better. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we have, might have more experience, mm-hmm. but in that way, like the patient comes with the reality and sometimes, yeah. I want to shift in a different direction. What, what about the... We, some of us have very young patients 19 20 
And there is some sort of grandiosity <laughs> that is part of that age that we're invincible. We could analyze that, of course, with our patients. But what if the analyst envies that youthful experience? Because the analyst is closer to, you know, an, an age that <laughs> to <probably what>? <laughs> to to death. <laughs> the, the, the analyst, the, there is a higher probability that the analyst will die. Yeah, slightly <laughs> higher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we never know for sure. Yeah, what it's true. What is the what? The experience of the analyst that cannot be shared, I guess. But what if that is part of what's going on in the in the room? You know, this sort of longing, nostalgia, maybe envy, what we see in the youth of this patient that we have in front of us. You know, and I think that is connected to death anxiety as well. You know. Mm -hmm. You know, I think as our life changes throughout our lifespan, right, as analysts, right, our patients are going through their developmental process, we're going through ours. And when those two things don't meet, right, I think there is a potential for an envy and a, maybe a sense of vitality that we do lose. I mean, I, I don't want to say we lose vitality because that's not true. It shifts into different directions. But there is a loss, right, as we age Yeah. There is a loss of certain things that we can not can't necessarily recapture because we're just not in that developmental phase anymore. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think kind of a libidinal energy shift that is related to death or the losses that we experience as we move through the lifespan. <laughs> I think what I hear you saying is that <laughs> Every loss we experience is a reminder of the major loss that we'll <laughs> experience yes. at the end, yes. which is the loss of our life, you know. Yes. So, and I agree, vitality is transformed. It takes different shapes as we develop through life. We need to mourn the loss of some sort of expressions of vitality. Mm -hmm. As we progress through life, we won't be walking as fast more sensitive to cold and heat right now <laughs> so that's an example and i need to acknowledge that that's my body and how it has changed mm -hmm. it makes me think that getting older i mean as after a certain point and maybe uh, that's where these two enter your 40s there is a sense of finitude that becomes a little bit more concrete yes yes And when you see younger patients, you see, or even younger people, but with patients it's probably more intense, you see the lack of understanding of where they are. Mm -hmm. Which actually reminds me of myself growing up when I would hear, I mean, I guess it was the same for you guys, uh, oh, you're young, oh, you feel invincible. I was like... I just feel like I feel. I mean, what are you talking about, old people? <laughs> and, <laughs> and now I'm like, oh, that's what they meant. <laughs> yes, I remember I started an analytic training in my 20s. And so I was a young, you know, therapist. And I remember a supervisor telling me, you know, at this period of being an analyst, you're going to experience erotic transference and patients mm -hmm. are going to fall in love with you and then at some point my supervisor was older you know at some point you're going to notice that shift and they don't fall in love with you anymore <laughs> they they project their mom or you know like some <laughs> and <laughs> and it's true it happens 
That's so sad. <laughs> it's like okay, and, fun- and funny at the same time. <laughs> yeah. I'm mom now. I'm no longer like you know yeah, the love I'm object. A, I'm a dad. Oh, you're a love object, granddad. <laughs> a different one. Yes, different I'm a different one. one. <laughs> That's yeah. Funny. To conclude those podcasts on death anxiety, if it can be concluded. I'd like us to um, exchange on something our audience probably did not notice because of the magic of editing. But I would like us to go back to the difficulty we had, especially at first, talking about the subject. And I'm going to try when I edit to keep the silences (laughs) (laughs) for that part. Uh, to give a sense of uh, maybe how difficult it can be to be actively thinking as soon as you are engaged with that topic. I remember the f- in the first recording session for the audience, we have had three recording sessions. And the first one, I do remember, and it makes me smile now, that Gregoire was saying something and I, th- I thought, what is he talking about? <laughs> and, <laughs> and then I could not put my thoughts together and say something coherent. So I was experiencing incoherence from Gregoire mm. and from myself. And, and I noticed that we were n- making no sense, or at least to me, it made no sense what we were saying. And I realized at that point, okay, this is... The three of us are very smart people. Let me put it that way. Yeah, we are. We are. <laughs> Thank you. We are coherent, <laughs> and we know what we're talking about. And so something was going on in that yeah. moment of the first recording. Yeah. And I think it was touching on that anxiety that we carry. Yes. And I, I had a similar experience, and I found myself actively dissociating, like in the sense, like, you guys would be talking, I'd be trying to follow you, and then it was almost like, you know, my mind would blank, and then I would pick up a couple sentences later where you were, and I would be lost, and I think, you know, I was trying very hard to focus on what we were talking about, especially because we're on a podcast, and I don't want to sound like an idiot, but no, uh, you won't. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to sound good. I wanted to have something important to say. Editing will make you sound so smart, Neil. <laughs> Don't good, worry. Good, good. Nobody will know. <laughs> <laughs> it was really hard to focus, and I kept getting lost in mm-hmm. my thoughts, or my mind would go blank. And this was, it was unusual because it doesn't happen like that. And we knew what we would be talking about, but as we got into the discussion, it it kind of. I got dysregulated and disoriented. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was a striking moment uh, for the three of us that we were talking a bit before to prepare. And as soon as we decided to record and to, I mean, probably to include the third listeners, it became much harder, if not impossible, to keep the thoughts at least to me, in my head. And similar to what Edgar just described, like, I would talk, I mean, I could hear myself talking, but, you know, like, you are, it's like you're paving the street as you're walking. Mm-hmm. And then you're looking back and like, oh, shit, what did I, what did I say? What? Uh, and 
So through the editing, I was able to remove those moments to create a more uh, coherent narrative. So I think now maybe some some of the listeners now are going to look back at the first <laughs> recording like this was all a fraud. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it the, was an the, illusion. The, the challenge is that we cannot edit our sessions with our patients. You know what happens happens in the in the moment, yeah. and you know we have to keep in mind that what we experience as uh, recording the podcast, we might experience with our patients in the room, and but it says something. And oh yeah. Sometimes it. It could be a pointer or a signpost in what direction we should go. You know. I mean, it, it does remind me of moments where... I mean, it happens to me less now that I'm uh, talking less, but where moments where I would the situation brought by the patient would be so anxiety-provoking that I would start... I would launch some kind of long-winded interpretation. Mm. And what I'm talking, I'm just like, what am I saying? Mm -hmm. Shut you up, know, and up. then and then the question is, how do I land? Because yes. <laughs> yes. this is a terrible moment in the therapy. Uh, yes. <laughs> There's something to that. Mm. Yeah. Funny. <laughs> but yeah, so it, I mean, it's difficult to. I mean, eventually we warmed up. Mm -hmm. And yes. we were able to get a better sense of how to approach something of the subject, but it is scary, and I I think I wanted to uh, to include that throwback to the the process. I mean, looking at the process of the creating yeah. the podcast, so that people who listen to us don't get the impression that it was easy. Yeah, it was not. No, it was not. Because it mm -hmm. it might sound easy once the recording mm -hmm. is over or the editing is over, but it was not. Yeah. And um, that's just as we shouldn't lie to our patients without full disclosure. I want to have our audience know that if they have a hard time dealing with it, so did we. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, it's important for us to be talking about it. It's just because it is so difficult to talk about. And, you know, even if it is a struggle you know, we got, we, we did get some things out we needed to say or that we wanted to say about this topic. And I think part of that is the process that we went through to get to it because we did have to address whatever was happening yes. between the three of us before we could move through it. And we did move through it, but it was really kind of a rough and rocky struggle internally for, for all three of us in different ways as we were talking. Mm-hmm. Because that leads me to questions that you addressed, Danielle, in the pre-production of the podcast, based on what we said so far, and especially what we just said. How, especially Danielle, do you have a sense of how this question of death anxiety could be included or addressed in a training? I think just acknowledgement of the reality. I do think exploring fantasies around death and, you know, symbolic connections and all the things we do as analysts are important, but also to be able to present the real more effectively, because I don't think we ever address that in training, not to my recollection. However, I could have been repressing that, you know, <laughs> so... <laughs> 
honestly, I was a pretty young when I went into analytic training and maybe it just wasn't uh, as close to my mind as it mm. is now. I don't remember any class addressing it at NPAP. Uh, and no. my experience in France, I think just one professor uh, in a very helpful way actually brought up something that I mentioned today, like the the need to balance reality and fantasies in that moment and that to stay in an interpretative mode is completely missing the point. Mm -hmm. But in all my training in France, I think it was just once. So it might not just be NPAP. It is a difficult theme. What I do remember is that in some classes or semin seminars, what if a patient has suicidal ideations? Mm. Mm. That, that we have touched upon. Now, I want to add a note here. We've had some colleagues of ours at NPAP who have died. Mm -hmm. And one thing that it was quite notable for me is that one of them committed suicide. And it was very difficult for us to talk about that death. Many others have died and cancer, um, you know, heart attack. That was easier to talk about. But one person who decided to take his life, that was very difficult. And what I observed is that instead of talking about the death and how it impacted us, Many people ask for, we need a seminar uh, on suicidal, mm. uh, assessing suicidal risk. Mm -hmm. That is defensive in nature. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> really? <laughs> we, <laughs> we, we are so scared of what has happened because one person, one colleague of ours decided that he was going to take his life, that we could not handle the situation. We could not metabolize and the only way to metabolize was to, th was to go through a, what do I do if there's a suicidal patient? Which is okay, that's fine uh, in terms of training. But I think it missed the point of a conversation about death. Death that happens or death that we decide to go through mm -hmm. in the case of a suicide. A conversation or I'm not sure we need to discuss death per se. More that we should not avoid discussing it. Uh, might not be a very clear distinction. Mm -hmm. I don't think it should be a taboo, but I don't really know also, on the other hand, how to address it as a topic. I mean, we did a bit for the podcast, but... But some people had the need, and then it began to show up in what people were saying in the listserv. Mm -hmm. And then one person realized, why don't we s meet, sit in the room together, and see where it goes. And that is the kind of conversation that I'm thinking about. To talk about technique and what to do, that's a different subject and an important one. But processing death, the death of a colleague in whatever forms that death came to be, what I saw in many of our colleagues is that they decided to gather, to sit together and, and talk without the rigidity of a plan, mm -hmm. of a workshop. Maybe one of the things to say when someone dies 
is or to let oneself experience and is anger anger i do remember one person saying how angry she was that our colleague took his life terribly angry maybe unfair but that is a, a feeling we can mm -hmm. have yeah yeah and i think that kind of discussion right just having being in the presence of how you feel about it within yourself as an analyst but also with your helping your patients to do that like you know the colleagues that all met i wasn't a part of this but i imagine that that was you know a way for them to share feelings together about this mm -hmm. very complicated thing and i think allowing those feelings a place to be is so important and I don't know that a class necessarily does that, but there are questions within the structure of the classroom, especially analytic training, that can help us process internally what might actually be stopping us from having conversations with our patients about these things, mm -hmm. or even with ourselves, right? Because if we're not having those internal conversations with ourselves, it's hard to see them in our patients. Yeah. I wonder if maybe we're going back to the idea uh, that uh, Edgar mentioned a few times that maybe what could be included in the training is a reminder that sometime uh, we have to take the real thing into account. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to remind the trainees of that and that maybe they feel allowed to not be in the interpretation mode. Because there are things we do that we are not allowed to do by our training institutes, which is, I think, uh, it's too bad. But And so for analysts to feel allowed and legitimate in a position that wouldn't be absolute. Yeah. And I have to say, like, I did read two books that really helped me by Irvin Yalom. One is Staring at the Sun, and the other is Keepers of the Day. And... They're case studies where he kind of addresses it. And whether I would do it the way he does it, you know, is beside the point. But it got me thinking in a very deep way about how I am handling these subjects and how I am processing them within myself. And so those of you who are listening to this and are interested, you may want to check those books out mm -hmm. just as an exercise in getting your mind thinking or processing within yourself about it. Before we wrap up, Daniel, I think you had a story that you wanted to share that will speak to something we talked about before, how the cultural environment influences our connection to death anxiety. So after our discussion about culture and how American culture you know, tends to shy away from discussions on death or even facing death, I thought of the story that happened not that long ago when my son was little. And it's kind of humorous, but it also illustrates sort of how taboo discussions on death are or how the public can respond to death. So I'm a very big indie music fan. And there's this musician, his name's Sufjan Stevens. And a couple years ago, he came out with this album. It's called Carrie and Lowell. And it is a really sad meditation on the death and loss of his mother 
and the songs are really dark, but they're so beautiful. And I became obsessed with this album. I listen to it all the time. And as I live in Missouri, I have a long drive everywhere I go. And so I had my, you know, at the time, three-year-old son in the car, you know, running errands. And so I'd be listening to this album over and over again. And so one day we were in the grocery store and he was in the cart and we were just going down the aisles and he started to sing the song. And the chorus to one of the songs called Fourth of July is, we're all going to die. And so my sweet little three-year-old son is in the grocery store singing, we're all going to die, you know, in his little angelic voice. And all the people in the store that heard him are just giving me the death glare, like, what are you teaching your kid? And I felt really embarrassed. And, you know, it's kind of a funny story at the same time, because he didn't know what he was saying. But everybody was looking at me like I was the worst mother. And I was feeling like the worst mother in that moment. Yeah, so that's kind of a a humorous story about death and the discussions of death. That's a very cute story, Tanil. Thank you. For today? Yes, our third and last installment on death anxiety. Yeah, mm-hmm. I guess there might be more, but I think we're ready to move on. Yes, in fact, we want to mention if anyone in the audience would like to offer some ideas for future podcasts, we are open to hear your ideas. We will consider them. Yes, feel free to contact us and give us some suggestions. We still have a lot of ideas ready to be used on a sheet of paper, but mm-hmm. we are also very interested in what people might be curious about and then maybe forced to think about it, etc. Try to produce something. I guess uh, so. We'll see you probably in October. That's and, it. And uh, mm-hmm. by the time we meet, maybe uh, I'm going to be a member at NPAP. Oh, what? Thank you.